Welcome to another episode of the Bible Toolbox. I'm Lydia. And I'm Luke. And we are here to help you enjoy the Bible through the tools that scholars and programmers have created for you. And today we have on with us Dr. Seth Ehorn. Got his PhD from the University of Edinburgh and has written you know, numerous works on composite citations and antiquity and intertextuality. And uh, are you still editing the, the Greek commentary series on the Apocrypha? Is that still ongoing? Yeah, so we have several uh, volumes of the Baylor Handbook on the Septuagint, which includes the Apocrypha. I am still a co-editor of that series. Yeah, awesome. yeah. So if none of those terms made sense, that's that's what we're here to learn about. <laughs> Hopefully today. by the end, we will know <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So just start out. Um, who are you and how did you become to where you're at now? Yeah, um, just a little bit about sort of the, the non-scholarly part of me. Um, I'm the husband to Rachel, father to Miles and Maddie. Those are my uh, eight-year-old and five-year-old at home. Um, so I'm a husband and a dad first. Um, I'm also a scholar of New Testament and Christian origins, um, as you said, trained at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I really enjoy teaching it, as, as I said, in New Testament and Christian origins, what is the world in which the New Testament was birthed? Um, if we just read the New Testament like a Christian document, we overlook the fact that it's a very Jewish document. And what does it mean to say it's a Jewish document? What are the Jewish texts and worldviews and ideologies that inform the New Testament? So I love kind of all that stuff and the way all of that feeds into New Testament studies. So I research and read and teach in that space. Um, I currently teach uh, courses in New Testament, sometimes in Greek, at uh, Wheaton College in Illinois. I'm an author. I, I held up a book already. I recently authored a, a handbook on Second Maccabees, um, a two-part handbook. We'll maybe talk more about that later. And the other book that's relatively recent is Exodus in the New Testament, um, a volume with me and a handful of other contributors looking at how the New Testament uses uh, Exodus themes, Exodus storylines, characters, and sort of pulls it forward to help narrate and think theologically about what Christ did on the cross or what the plagues are doing, uh, judging people in the book of Revelation, mm -hmm. a whole range of things. Um, so that's a little bit about me um, and uh, the kind of work I'm doing and the kind of teaching that I'm involved in. Great. All right. Well, let's just start out with uh, you've written on intertextuality. What is that and why is it important? Yeah. So broadly speaking, what is intertextuality? It is a field of study that's concerned with how a given text, like the New Testament, is connected with other texts, like the Old Testament, and how those connections affect interpretation. So how one text connects to another text, but then how the, the connections that we start forging between them affect the way we interpret so my specific field of study, as I said, New Testament, uh, we, we would often think about how does the New Testament use the Old Testament? And how does the storylines of the Old Testament or the characters or even specific verses, how are they used and deployed in the New Testament? Um, so that happens in a number of different ways. It happens at the level of what we call quotation. So, you know, when Paul says it is written in scripture and then he starts quoting or, uh, you know, when Mark's gospel opens, it says, as it is written in the book of Jeremiah, or as, as the prophet Jeremiah says, that's a quotation. 
an overt evocation of scripture. But there are other kinds of evocations, right? You have allusions. So allusions are much more subtle, right? Maybe you have to have an ear attuned for the right story or the right um, set of words that sort of trigger, oh yeah, that's from this text, right? Um, i trying to think of a good non-biblical example of that, right? Um, maybe uh, Lincoln's speech, right? Four score and seven years ago. Mm. You know, you could, you could often hear people use a speech like that and go, you know, four score and two days ago, right? And they, they're sort of updating it, but they're using that historical reference as a way to sort of, you know, you know, prick your ears and go, oh, I know that. I, I, you're, you're saying something important now. Um, so we see allusions used like that all the time in the New Testament. Um, there's also things that happen at the thematic level, um, things where maybe just broad, broad themes that I mentioned already, like uh, the plagues um, from the book of Exodus. You know, you go read the book of Revelation and there's all of these plagues and you go, what's going on here, right? And sometimes they correspond really closely to the book of Exodus. And sometimes it's just more general. Judgment is happening. Um, but you're supposed to use like, well, what happened in the book of Exodus? And that becomes the framework for the book of Revelation. What's going to happen to God's enemies over here? Hmm. Um, and then there's also just more general patterning that happens as well. But that can get really uh, nebulous really quick. So uh, quotations, allusions, themes, and more general patterns are the kinds of things we see in intertextuality. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe I'll just close that thought by saying there's a rich and growing history of intertextuality that, that's happening in our field in New Testament studies. But what, it, what it's doing is demonstrating really how literary readings of the Bible are really fruitful and will continue to generate new insights, uh, hopefully for many, many years. So intertextuality, like literally inter between text. So is there a certain text that you focus on outside of the Bible? Yeah, I focus on, um, uh, right, right now, at least I'm focusing on some of the um, apocryphal literature. Uh, so second Maccabees, and we'll talk about the apocrypha and, and things later. Um, but that's that's been a particular area of study for me recently. But in terms of my own New Testament studies, I've written a lot on Paul and scripture. So uh, most recently, Exodus and Paul, um, but you know, Isaiah and Paul, Psalms and Paul. So in general, I'm, I'm kind of just working in that space. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to just talk briefly on composite citations? What, yeah. what is that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so what are composite citations or composite quotations? Um, it turns out about just shy of 20%, it's something like 19 point something percent of the time when the New Testament makes an explicit quotation, right? It is written in scripture or the prophet says um, that it's not just quoting from a single text, but it's quoting from one, uh, I'm sorry, two or more texts. So just one or two examples of that are the very opening of Mark's gospel. Right. Mark starts by saying uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it says, um, you know, uh, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And, you know, if if, if what I'm saying isn't ringing a bell, go look at Mark verses two and three. And what you'll see is the explicit mention of Isaiah, the prophet, 
But then Mark starts quoting from the book of Malachi. <laughs> and then he starts quoting from Isaiah, right? So that's what I mean by a composite text, a text where it's not just one. There's actually multiple uh, sources that have been maybe fused together in the tradition. Um, and so uh, I have two books uh, co-edited with a colleague of mine from the University of Glasgow, where we try to look at the New Testament doing that. And again, about 20% of the time when they quote, they're doing something like that. Um, but we also try to situate that quotation practice in the sort of wider field. So uh, lots of people would say things like, you know, are, is the New Testament just, you know, grossly misquoting these texts and getting it wrong or these memory mistakes? Like, does, does Mark not know what, what's Malachi and what's Isaiah and that kind of stuff? Um, so we didn't want to start with any predetermined conclusions. We just want to say, do other people do this? Um, and what we found out was, yeah, lots of people did it. Um, so uh, we have chapters on Plutarch and uh, Philo of Alexandria and Latin letter writers and the Dead Sea Scrolls and a whole range of authors. And what we found was, yeah, you can find examples, not, not as many, not as prolific of examples as you find in the New Testament, but I found like nine or 10 in Plutarch's writings, places where he clearly was pulling one or more sources together and where in my judgment, it was clear that he was the one who did it and probably knew what he was doing when he did it. So it becomes hard to sustain an argument that it's just a sloppy citation technique when like really elite Roman and Greek authors are also doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's some payoff there that we didn't even anticipate, right? So we've had even a couple of like Christian apologists have contacted me and said like, hey, how do you feel about me using your work over here in this space? I'm like, more power to you. I didn't do it. <laughs> go for it. Seems, seems reasonable based upon the conclusions we drew. Um, so that's, that's the kind of thing that um, we do in those books. Um, and yeah, ho hopefully not only describing the phenomena of those quotations better, but also providing a framework for uh, others to think about uh, composite texts going forward. And I'll just put in one little plug. Um, in those books, there's two books, we only looked at quotations. We didn't even look at allusions. But good things come to those who wait. There's another book coming <laughs> on illusions. Uh, so that's, I don't know when that'll come out, maybe a year or two from now, but we're getting close to that sort of waiting period for all the chapters from all the scholars who are writing on it. So that's been a, a labor of love for really all of my life as a doctor. That process has been <laughs> wow. uh, burning, uh, <laughs> burning the candle, so to speak. Would Would the purpose be mainly to like, draw together themes in the old testament that they want to put side by side or what what would be the purpose of doing that of of creating a composite feature yeah yeah um sometimes so it, it depends on the kind of text we're dealing with um so there are different kinds of of composite texts some of them are just shortening or abbreviating so maybe you have a big chunk of a text and you keep something from the beginning and the end, but you just drop out everything in the middle. Mm -hmm. That could just be maybe to keep the key themes that you want and elide out everything that you don't want, right? Um, so that, that would be more of like a focus um, rather than drawing mm -hmm. things together from disparate places. But more often than not, you get one text, like, like for example, the, the opening of Mark, which we've talked about already, you get Malachi and Isaiah brought together. So... Certainly there's a, there's a, uh, 
a combination of themes and even words sometimes that um, help the authors sort of read these texts side by side. But I think what's happening there, just to pick that example, is Mark wants you to read all of his gospel, but especially that quotation in light of the book of Isaiah. So he names Isaiah, right? He's not going to like, as is written in a couple of different prophets, right? But as is written in Isaiah, so that that becomes the frame of reference in which you read the quotation and then therefore the rest of his gospel, because it's sort of setting up the rest of the gospel mm -hmm. um, as something of like an Isianic new Exodus, right? What God was doing in the Exodus uh, that, that Isaiah sort of picks up on, Mark's like, hey, that's going on here. And you can see why Malachi becomes important of that as well, because as, as one of the minor prophets that sort of ends with, uh, you know, an Elijah figure and things like that, that starts to make sense of how mm -hmm. Mark's gospel is going to start weaving a story about Jesus and John the Baptist and the things that will happen to them. Hmm. So kind of um, reminds me of like cultural backgrounds, but you're more like literary backgrounds. How are these That's literary right. texts affecting the Bible and quoted in the Bible and that's exactly that. okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we we are, we had an interview on biblical theology as well, mm. and so tying these these themes together can you know build build a biblical theology or draw on a theme like that. Excellent. Yeah. So let's let's transition a little bit into your work on the Apocrypha and the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. um, what are these what, texts what that are we these, keep talking about? <laughs> why are they important? Yeah. So um, let me start with the Septuagint and then we'll move to the Apocrypha. Um, so the Septuagint is a sort of blanket term um, that, that both scholars, but also lay people use to refer to Greek scripture. That is biblical books like Genesis, Exodus, uh, and so forth written in Greek. Um, there's a more technical definition that scholars use as well, but for our purposes, it's okay to say that's generally what, what people mean when they say the Septuagint. Um, we, we would want a lot more nuance in, in, in some areas, but that's okay. So the Septuagint, um, that's what it is. Why is it important though? Um, as far as we can tell, most of the New Testament writers were readers of what we would call a Greek Bible or the Septuagint. Um, Paul, it looks to me like most of his quotations from scripture are from Greek versions of scripture, not Hebrew ones. That is, that seems to be what he learned growing up. Um, I would say the same thing about um, most of the gospels. In fact, there's a debate in the gospel of Matthew. Does it look a little bit more Hebrew or Greek? I think there's a really good argument. It's Greek um, that we'll get into the weeds on that though. Uh, the point is that seems to be the Bible or the versions of the Bible that these early authors are reading, which means that if we want to get closer to what they're thinking and they're reading and, and they're quoting, we would probably want to do the best we could to read that Bible as well um, for the purposes of our own understanding. It would be sort of like saying, you know, if, if your preacher was preaching from the NIV and making points from the NIV, right? And you're sitting there with an ESV, like it's not quite the right Bible, right? Mm -hmm. to, to sort of track exactly with the points that they're making from their Bible, right? It doesn't mean it's an inferior text in any way, but it does, it's harder to follow what they're doing if you're not looking at a similar kind of source. So that's what the Septuagint is. 
Um, within the Septuagint, there's uh, a selection of books that um, Protestants would call the Apocrypha. Uh, so what is that? The English word Apocrypha, um, it's actually a, a, I guess it's a transliteration of a Greek adjective uh, Apocryphos, which means hidden or concealed thing. Um, so uh, that's that's what the word means uh, literally in Greek. Oftentimes, though, people in English sort of use it as a circumlocution for like false or mm. incorrect writings. Um, and I, I don't know that I want to endorse that. <laughs> I just want to that. <laughs> people often use apocrypha as if it's a dirty word or something, right? It's like, oh, that means bad. Um, so in biblical studies, though, um, it, it's a word largely used by just Protestants. Um, and I'm a Protestant, so I'm okay using it. I'll, sometimes I'll say so-called apocrypha. Um, but it's to refer to those books that are copied alongside other religious books, um, like things that we call the Old Testament or the New Testament. So copied with, often in the same codex as those books, um, and preserved by Christians, right? So when we talk about the apocrypha, we're not talking about uh, Jewish scribes preserving these works for us and, and copying them. We're talking about Christians copying them, putting them together with Old and New Testament all in one book for, you know, generations and generations and generations. Um, one final thought about that terminology. Um, our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic tradition or in Greek Orthodox traditions, they use what we would call apocryphal books, but they have other terminology for them. Deuterocanonical is what they would call it. Um, that is not a, a word of um, logical priority or theological priority. It's not saying like we have our proto-canon and that's that's the good stuff. And then we have our deuterocanon. That's sort of like second tier stuff. That's not what it means. It means something more like original canon and sort of second canon in terms of chronology. So it's, it's acknowledging that we have a, an earlier canon that took shape that was more clear to us first, and then a, a second level of canon. And there's not a gradation of value uh, laden into that terminology. It's more about the chronology. Um, so that's what the Apocrypha is. Um, and since we'll talk more about this in a moment, but um, what are the books? I just wanted to read a short list of those books, just so you have them in your heads. Um, and I'm, I'm cheating, I'm just reading right from a list in my, <laughs> in my Apocrypha right here. Uh, Tobit, Judith, the editions of the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, the additions to the Greek book of Daniel, ooh, including, I love these. Uh, what are the additions? The prayer of Azariah, Susanna, and Bell and the dragon. <laughs> first Maccabees, second Maccabees, first Esdras, the prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151, third Maccabees, two Esdras, and fourth Maccabees. So those are just, uh, well, th that's the majority of books. There's sometimes a few fringe books, uh, but those, those are sort of the normal uh, ones that typically get included in modern apocrypha collections. So it talks about dragons, so I, I don't <laughs> see how I can trust it. Uh, why Why would we even read these books? Yeah, why do <laughs> Protestants not use them, but like you said, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox do? What, what's the difference? Yeah, good question. So I want to start with the history. Um, 
you know, you're right to say that most Protestants don't read the Apocrypha today to our shame, but that's not always true. In fact, historically, um, just to speak about Protestants, historically, we are the in the minority. Um, when Luther translated a vernacular German Bible, guess what he included? Guess what he went through the, the painstaking process of, of translating? You guessed it, the Apocrypha. Guess what Calvin included in his Bible, right? So, you know, you sort of go through all of the reformers and go like, oh, wow, I, I didn't think these guys would have that, but they all put it in their Bibles. Now they delineate them from the old, what we call the Old and New Testament. So they sort of space them in the middle and sort of put something of a fence around it. Like, ooh, you know, these aren't the same, but the idea that they're worth reading, or I think Luther calls them, uh, interesting and useful or good and useful um, to read. Um, that seems to me to be an important uh, part of the history of the Apocrypha in the Protestant tradition. One other, uh, one other place you'll find the Apocrypha, the original King James Bible, the 1611 wow. Bible. Yeah, printed in that. Um, so, you know, Protestants have a, a, a long, deep, deep, deep history of reading the Apocrypha, printing in our Bibles. And it really wasn't until about 1800s when Protestants stopped doing that. And we sort of are living kind of in the in that area where most Protestant Bibles don't have it. But uh, I'm grateful that we're starting to see some Protestant Bibles printing it, it again um, for the exact reasons that historically we've read it, because they're interesting and useful. Uh, and, and I could talk more about maybe why they're useful, if that'd be useful to you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, I just jotted down a few thoughts uh, about some of the ways it's useful. So I think when you read the New Testament, you encounter things that are really baffling unless you have an understanding of Second Temple Jewish literature. Um, what is Second Temple Jewish literature? Well, the Apocrypha, but literature that's been produced in the period when the Second Temple uh, was built and was standing. And that temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD. So what is the literature that was built? Um, Zerubbabel's temple, uh, Hezekiah, uh, all the way up to Herod, right? Herod uh, also had something to do with that temple. So some things like Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, right? If you go read the Old Testament, you're not going to get any wiser about who those people are right? They just show up in the Gospels. Where did they come from? Like, where did those movements develop from? Um, well, if you go read like First and Second Maccabees, you can get at least a pretty clear idea of where these different voices come from. And it's not that they describe like, here's what a Pharisee is, or here's what a Sadducee is. It's that you see what happens when you have people, Jews living in Jerusalem, and then you have Hellenistic kings, foreign kings coming in, turning Jerusalem into a Greek city, right? Compelling them to stop keeping their laws, stop circumcising, eat non-kosher foods. And how do these people react? Well, some of them move out of the city into the wilderness. And now you should be thinking, hmm, John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Like, why is he in the wilderness when Mark's gospel starts? right? Why is he saying offering a forgiveness of sins or sorry, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, right? Shouldn't you be going, hey, wait a minute, that's supposed to happen in the temple. Why is he offering this in the wilderness, right? Oh, 
that's where the Maccabees moved, right? When, when all hell broke loose in Jerusalem, they got out of Dodge, they left. That's what John the Baptist seems to be doing. Um, what about the Pharisees? They are, uh, there's speculation about what the name means, uh, but one of the sort of popular etymologies is they're separate, separatists. Now they didn't, not so separate that they leave and move, but they are, they've created ways of living where they stay in the city, but they are uh, creating barriers and, and, and spheres of separation between sort of Gentile uh, impurities, really, and their Jewish ways of life. Now, doesn't that help you understand the way that Pharisees not only talk about keeping Torah, but also have additions to law that help them hedge a fence around Torah so we can keep it? Um, and then Sadducees would be a, a range of people who are a lot more accommodating to, say, the, the local imperial power of the day, right? So when you think about when Jesus is arrested, oh, there's Sadducees almost always involved, right? Because they're a lot more closely aligned with whoever's in power. Um, so that's just a couple of examples of how you can see in the Maccabean books, people are negotiating how they're going to adjust to a foreign power and uh, and. And, and you see sort of what happens. And then you go read the New Testament, you're like, oh yeah, it's, that's what's happening here. But the sort of positions have solidified over time and, and different parties and sects have uh, solidified over time. So that'd so be this, one example. Is the Apocrypha written between Malachi and Matthew? Broadly speaking, yes. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's common to, to talk about it as intertestamental literature. And broadly speaking, I would say yes, right? Okay. Um, yeah. There's, you know, there's always some debate about how late are certain, did certain books become mm -hmm. finalized and all that, but we'll just, we'll avoid that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's one example. You want maybe one more example? Sure. Uh, yeah. Maybe why a Protestant would want to read. Hmm. How about, how about this? Um, there are, it helps us understand particular theological claims that we encounter in the New Testament. So in Second Maccabees, my, 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 one of my favorite books, because I've written a lot about it, there's two chapters in uh, the first part of the book, um, chapters six and seven. It recounts the martyrdom of uh, an elder gentleman named Eleazar. And then in chapter seven, it talks about the martyrdom of these seven brothers. Um, they're all Jews, and they're all dying at the hands of these sort of pagan Hellenistic kings, and uh, what goes on is they just want them like, hey, just basically renounce your Judaism or renounce your Jewish law, right? Eat this like pig, eat this non-kosher food. It's all we want you to do as soon as you even, even pretend, right? One of the brothers is offered like a, a morsel of pig. He's like, just put it in your mouth. You don't even have to eat it. It doesn't even have to enter your body and we'll stop, right? We will be, we will have been, um, uh, we, we will be appeased if you do that. And they all reject it and they're all killed. And some of the, some of the, the martyrdom stories are just brutal. Very like, brutal. I couldn't get through it. Cutting out, <laughs> cutting out a tongue, cutting off hands, legs. Uh, there's a scene where they talk about, you know, heating up cauldrons that they're going to boil them. Yeah, in. you can just skip over all that. It's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> brutal. That's not, oh. even, that's not even the best or I guess the worst story. The worst stories in the latter half in mm -hmm. chapter 14. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> we won't mention that. <laughs> Thank you for my sake. <laughs> but where's the theology in all this? 
in the martyrdom stories, you see over and over and over again that these brothers express a view that though these pagans are going to be destroying their bodies, like ripping their hands off and things, that God is going to reconstitute their bodies. In other words, it seems like a belief in resurrection, mm-hmm. explicitly so. Um, and it is a matter of debate in the Hebrew Bible if if resurrection is a is is a teaching that you find there, right? Some people will point to certain parts of Daniel or other texts. My my only point is you can't. It's not a matter of debate when you get into Second Maccabees. It's there, right? So where does this belief really flourish and come to come to a a full explicit expression in the Second Temple period, and especially in one of the earliest texts, Second Maccabees, you see it. Um, as a vindication, right? God will, I'm uh, sorry, uh, though these people destroy our bodies, the righteous will be vindicated by God by being reconstituted. So God will give me back the hands that these pagan kings took. So that seems to me pretty important when you turn to the pages <laughs> of the Testament, right? Not only is God going to raise Jesus to new life, uh, to a pneumatic life, but um, Christians also confess that that's what's going to happen to us too. And we see that pretty clearly in the books of Maccabees, especially uh, second Maccabees. So if these texts have been preserved for this time and had been used by Protestants, like why aren't they in the canon? Why aren't they in the Bible? Yeah. Um, We're assuming they're true. Yeah. So we don't have to... uh, this is a good question. So sort of, can we trust it maybe is, is, mm-hmm. is the question, right? I want to answer yes and no. Okay. Yes and no, right? So Protestants don't have a history of reading the Apocrypha as scripture. We have good reasons for that, I think. Um, there are things in, in it that, that don't ring true at all and that don't align with other things in our, uh, in our canon, in our accepted canon of Old and New Testament. So if, if we think one of the criteria for, for canonization, say, of the New Testament is um, alignment with the, the rule of faith, like alignment with, with other books that we find, we're going to find some problems when we talk about the Apocrypha. It doesn't always align. Um, so in that sense, our answer is no, we can't trust it blanketly. But trust is the important word there. Trust it for what? So there are many things, and indeed many books, that aren't in Scripture that we can trust for certain things, right? Like I, you mentioned you were a math teacher. I hope you can trust your math book that you give to your students, right? In certain, in certain respects, right? Not in all of your life, right? Mm-hmm. So what can we trust the Apocrypha to do? I think we can often trust it to give us useful historical, even theological, and ideological um, Uh, sense of certain issues that inform our reading of both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, uh, so that when we read it, we have a better sense for, uh, you know, what Jesus is doing as a teacher, what Paul is doing as a Pharisee, what resurrection means to Jews at the time. So if that's what we mean by can we trust it, I would say, yeah, we can, not uncritically, of course, but but carefully, often with, with a good guide in hand to help us think about how we can trust it. And Maybe that's a good place to, to put in a plug. There's a really good book um, by David De Silva called Introducing the Apocrypha. Okay. Be a great place to start if anything I'm saying is at all interesting. 
<laughs> yeah, and we both read the Apocrypha, and it was interesting and helpful and insightful. I wouldn't say anything was like, oh my, but yeah, it was just yeah, yeah. encouraging and. Yeah, well, and so, some of the books, like the Wisdom of Solomon, you might have read that and been like, that could have been like my devotions, right? Like it's <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's transition again. So how do you as a scholar do your personal devotions or your, your time with God? Yeah. Um, so because I have the incredible joy of being a scholar and doing, spending a lot of time engaged in really close readings of scripture, when I read devotionally, I like to read a lot. So I like to sit down. I have, uh, I give myself permission to write in my Bibles in most of my books. So I like to write in my Bibles and make notes and read like, you know, 20, 30 minutes at a time uh, when I read devotionally so that I can so, sort of see those larger sweeps of things. Because like I said, I spend so much time doing those micro tiny readings that um, I, I just feel like I need to fill out in other ways. Um, so that would be the largest thing I do. The, the other thing I do um, in personal time is uh, think about how I might incorporate the Bible in my prayer life. Mm. Uh, now, I'm not under the illusion that everyone should read the way I do. That's just because I have the particular vocation of a scholar. Sure. Um, but, but if that's useful for anyone else to think about, what does it mean to like pray the Psalms or use text from the Bible as a script of a sort for your own prayer life? Mm. Um, that's something to think about and cultivate. And it is a skill to cultivate. For sure. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Well, that was a really insightful, helpful um, use of the, or explanation of the Apocrypha. And I think it would be really helpful to our listeners. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to be of service. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Bible Toolbox. Visit our website at thebibletoolbox.com for more information and resources about the content. Be sure to contact us with suggestions of any tools you'd like us to review. And thank you to those who support us on Patreon and who have reached out with encouraging messages. We couldn't do it without you. 